But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, um, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me, one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. Therefore, Israel will be abandoned under the time when she who is in labor bears a son, and the rest of his brothers return to join the Israelites. He will stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name, and the, and the Lord his God. And they will live securely, for then his greatness, which reached to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. Today is the second Sunday of Advent. This morning, we will light the second candle known as the Peace Candle, as well as the Bethlehem Candle. Although a small town, Bethlehem was an important community located approximately eight miles southeast of Jerusalem. First, as we just heard, it was the prophesied birthplace for the Messiah. But second, Bethlehem was also known for being the city of David, the hometown of Israel's most famous king. The fact the Messiah was to be born not only in the ancestral line of David, but also born in the city of David, shows us Jesus was to be king. The Westminster Catechism says, as our king, Christ brings us under his power, rules and defends us, and restrains and conquers all his and all our enemies. Therefore, the role of a king is to bring and maintain peace. And so we light the peace candle. Isaiah 6, 9. For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. We pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus, the Prince of Peace, born in the city of David, to remind us that he is the true king of all time. And in him, and him alone, we can find true peace. Fill us with your everlasting peace during the season of Advent. And give us all a wonderful community together here at Riverwood. Amen. All right. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if I have not had the chance to meet you, as uh, Bridget said, my name is Aaron. Really glad that you're with us on this second Sunday of Advent. Um, I want to add just one thing that uh, she shared. Uh, yes, our meeting right afterwards is for Riverwood Partners, but if you're not a Riverwood Partner, you are more than welcome to stay, all right? I don't know why you would. Uh, I, I'm not the kind of person who enjoys looking at budget numbers. It's kind of boring. So maybe if you didn't sleep well last night, come, and uh, you can catch a little uh, Sunday nap. Um, but also, just want you to know, like, it's we're transparent and so if you want to see kind of what we're having to talk about what we're dealing with You're more than welcome to stay now because you're not a partner You won't be able to get to vote here in a couple of weeks when we uh, uh Finally say yes, this is what we're doing, but uh, uh, You're more than welcome to stay if you just want to kind of know a little bit more of who we are where we're going What we're working on what we're talking about and how we together as partners are saying we're coming together to accomplish this mission Well back in the shutdown of 2020. I heard about a company called the Magic Puzzle. 
Uh, I really enjoy puzzles, and because it looked like we were, for the unforeseeable future, going to be stuck in our homes, I thought this would be a great activity. And they were doing a Kickstarter campaign. They were trying to release three puzzles at the same time, but didn't have the, the funds to mass produce and get these sent out. So I took a small risk, and it's small because with Kickstarter, you get your money back uh, if, if it doesn't work. But it was successful, and eventually I got my puzzle. However, it didn't arrive until like October. Uh, we were back to shopping at Walmart. But anyway, I still was happy to get my puzzle. Well, we put it together, and it was a ton of fun. So much so that just a couple weeks ago, I ordered a second one of these, a different one, for us to do on Thanksgiving with our family. Well, we took a trip to Michigan. And that was a, a ton of fun to do. Now, what's a little bit different about these puzzles is um, they're called a magic puzzle because a team of artists and magicians came together and tried to figure out a way, how can we give one of these puzzles like a magic reveal? So I'm going to be very careful with what I say because I don't want to spoil anything for you. Because if you like puzzles, you need to get a magic puzzle. It's just a little different, and you will thoroughly enjoy it. Now, some of you are going, yeah, but I don't care about puzzles. I don't like puzzles. Well, that's what my daughter would say. However, over Thanksgiving, she probably worked on it the most. She's like, this puzzle's so different. I love this thing. This is addicting. This is awesome. So even if you hate puzzles, I'm not going to spoil anything for you so that you too will go and get a magic puzzle. But here's how it works. You open up the box, and inside's a big envelope. It's got all the puzzle pieces in it. So you empty it out, and there's a couple of posters in there so you can kind of see what you're putting together. And then there's another envelope in the box, and on it it says, stop, do not open this, you need to finish the puzzle first. So you finish your puzzle, you pull out this envelope, you open it up, and inside is another envelope saying, seriously, don't open this. In fact, the one we just did said something like, the ghost of Gandalf will haunt you for the rest of your life if you open this up too soon, or something like that. Right? You don't do it because inside of that is another set of puzzle pieces. And you begin to put those together and they kind of end up changing, adding to what you just originally put together. It's a magic puzzle. The reason I'm talking about this today is because we get to put together a bit of a theological, magical puzzle. In fact, that's what all of Advent is about. The, the ancient Jewish people were looking forward to some sort of Messiah, and they were trying to put together the puzzle picture of what this Messiah looked like. And today, we get to add a few more pieces of what the Messiah would look like and how Jesus not only fits the picture, but he even goes beyond the picture, revealing himself to be a little bit magical. To see it, I invite you to open up your Bible to Psalm 110. Psalm 110. If you did not bring a Bible, don't worry. I'm going to be putting all of our scripture today up on the screen. We will be hopping around, and I want you to be able to follow along. But we just really encourage you to have your own Bible. So that means if you need to, download a Bible to your phone, and feel free to pull that out on Sunday mornings when you come, or stop by our resource table. We've got two different uh, paper translations back there. We'd love to give one of those to you as a Christmas gift, and that can become your everyday Bible. Uh, last week, as we kicked off Advent, Jake did a phenomenal job of, of getting us going, of looking at how one of the puzzle pictures that the people were trying to figure out was the idea that the Messiah would be a prophet. He took us to Deuteronomy 18 to show how God had said to Moses, and then Moses revealed to the people, that God would raise up a prophet like him. And, and then Jake showed us how Jesus is the true and better prophet, the true and ultimate prophet. 
next week we get to see another one of the puzzle pictures, and that is that the Messiah would be a king. But this week, we're going to see how the Messiah also needed to fulfill this function, this role of a priest. And that is what Psalm 110 begins to help us see. So if you've got Psalm 110 open, go down to verse 4. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Let's take a moment to pray. Heavenly Father, uh, we are coming to your holy scriptures. We've read this verse out of Psalm 110. Uh, we ask, though, that you begin to unpack it for us. Show us how it relates with Christmas, how it relates to the coming of Jesus, to also show us what Jesus should mean for us. God, every person in this room is at a different place in their spiritual walk. Some have been following you for a long time. Some, this is a brand new thing for them. Some are here because they have questions. Some are here and they know these things because they grew up in church, but they are struggling. Some are here and they have doubts. Lord God, I do not presume to think that I have the ability to speak to each and every one of those people. But God, I fully trust that you do, that your Holy Spirit can go beyond what anything I can do, and that even things that I may forget to say or should say or even accidentally say, you will work beyond that to say what you need to say to your people because you know them, you know their stories, you love them, and you sent Jesus to be their great high priest. So I pray you'd help them to see you so clearly today through me, through your scriptures, through our times in song, and our times in prayer, and they'd walk out of here vividly knowing who Jesus is and what he did for them. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. So here in the middle of the psalm, uh, right at the high point of it, King David, the author, says that the Lord has sworn, he's promised, and he's not going to change his mind, but he's talking to some sort of individual, and he says, you, the Lord says to him, you are going to be a priest forever after the order, or in the pattern of Melchizedek. This means that in order for us to understand this verse, we've got to understand who in the world is Melchizedek? So, to get to know Melchizedek, you've got to go back to Genesis chapter 14. So head to the very first book of the Bible and head for the 14th chapter. To appreciate what we're about to read out of chapter 14, I need to take you back to chapter 12. Many of you have heard the name Abraham. Maybe you went to VBS and you sang the little song, Father Abraham has many sons. Abraham was the patriarch. God used him to create the Jewish people. Well, when we meet Abraham, he hasn't been quite named Abraham yet. He's still known by his birth name of Abram. And Abram is married to Sarai. They have no kids yet. And God says to Abram, go, take off, leave, go to the land that I will show you. Doesn't tell him the name, doesn't tell him where it's located, doesn't give him the GPS coordinates, just says, go. And so Abram and Sarai pack their stuff up and they take off. Now, they don't go alone. They end up taking along their nephew, Lot. Uh, Lot and Abram are both very, very rich, very, very wealthy. Because when you get to chapter 13, you see they come to this region, and it looks really good, but they have too many sheep and too many people in their households in order for the land to sustain both of them. 
And so they agree together. They weren't mad at each other. They, they make this amicable split. And Lot says, you know what? I'll go over to this region and, and take my flocks and family and my servants all over here. And so Abraham says, all right, I'll head over this direction. Well, when you get to chapter 14, you find out that there are these four kings who decide to band together to create one big army, and they invade these five cities, and they win. And they take all the stuff and all the flocks, but they also take the people some of whom was Lot and his family. One messenger escapes, goes running, finds Abram, and says, Abram, your nephew Lot has been taken captive. Tells him the whole entire story. Here's how big and powerful and wealthy Abram was. It says that he gathered up his trained men, which was 312, and they take off, and they go to fight these four kings, and they win. They defeat them, free Lot and his family and his servants and everything, and also free all the people, begin to let everyone go home, but because he wins the war, he gets the spoils. And so the powerful, wealthy Abram just got a whole lot more. And that's when we read a very bizarre story. So if you've got Genesis 14 open there, look at verse 17. So after Abram returned from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, that's one of the kings, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abram at the valley of Sheba. That is the king's valley. All right, so he's getting ready to meet from the, the, this king. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God most high. And he blessed Abram and said, Blessed be Abram by God most high, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abram gave him a tenth of everything. This is the only place in all of Scripture that we meet Melchizedek. Now, he's talked about in a couple other places, like Psalm 110. He's also mentioned in Hebrews. We're going to be in Hebrews today. But this is the only place he actually shows up. And so because of this really strange interaction with Abram, it, it kind of creates Melchizedek as this mysterious larger-than-life type of character. Because we really don't know much about this guy at all. For instance, we have no idea who his family is. Was, was he married? Did, did he have any kids? Oftentimes in the Bible, we would meet someone, and we'd say, oh, well, this is Aaron, son of Larry. You know, like, you, you know who their father is. We don't know that with Melchizedek. We, we have no idea how old he is. We have no idea how long he's been reigning as a king. We don't even know if he and Abram have already known each other. I mean, maybe they've hung out and played cards. You know, maybe talked about God. Or maybe this is their first meeting. We don't know. All we know is two things. He's the king of Salem, that little town which later becomes known as Jerusalem. And he is a priest of God Most High. So he would have been a spiritual brother, in a sense, with Abram. And just as quickly as he appeared... He disappears. But right before he disappears from the pages of Scripture, it says there that Abram gave him a tenth, a tithe, out of the spoils. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Here is the mighty, wealthy, soon-to-be-very-famous Abram. I mean, in, in three chapters, he's going to be renamed Abraham, which means father of many. Because God has promised to create enough descendants that they will be as numerous as the stars in heaven and as, as many as the sands on the shore. 
He's going, God is going to create the Jewish people physically through Abraham and spiritually all those who follow Jesus. Also, Abram had 312 men. He's powerful. They could go and defeat armies. He's wealthy, so wealthy that he and Lot couldn't even maintain the same region because they would overwhelm the land. Abram is powerful. He is the, the, the start of the Jewish people. And yet he, as great and powerful as he is, gives a tenth to Melchizedek and receives a blessing from him. This is why the author of the book of Hebrews says this in chapter uh, 7 as he talks about this story we just read. See how great this man Melchizedek was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the spoils. And those descendants of Levi, put a little pause there. Abraham ends up having a son, Isaac. Isaac has a son, Jacob. Jacob ends up having 12 sons. Those 12 sons become the 12 tribes of Israel. One of those tribes was named after the son, Levi. They, unlike the other 11 tribes, were not given an allotment of land when the people came into the promised land. Rather, the Levites became the priests. They maintained and managed everything for the Jewish people when it came to their religion. We're going to talk about them here in just a little bit. But that's who he's talking about here in verse 5. And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people. So they're supposed to receive a tenth from the Jewish people. That is from their brothers, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, Melchizedek, who does not have his descendant from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, the, the author of Hebrews is saying that as great as Abraham was, Melchizedek was greater he was superior, giving the blessing to the one who was inferior. He was the one who was receiving the tithe, not Melchizedek saying, whoa, great are you, let me give to you. So if you've been following uh, Jesus for a while, or maybe you grew up in church, or maybe the fact that you're here on a Sunday morning, you're starting to figure out, I think I know what's going on. I think I know, back in Psalm 110, verse 4, who David is writing about and to. I think I'm starting to figure out who is greater than Abraham, the one who is this priest in the order of, the, in, in the order of Melchizedek, the king priest. But before you say, oh, I've got the puzzle picture figured out, let's add a few more pieces. Let's make this a little clearer. And, and to do that, we need to talk about the role of a priest. When God created the, uh, priest, uh, the priesthood uh, through the Jewish people, he created three groups. We just talked about the, the Levites. That's the first group. Uh, the, the Levites maintained the temple or the, the sanctuary that, that when they were out in the wilderness, the tabernacle. And they uh, uh, helped make sure that things were clean, things were set up, everything was in operation. They were the ones who do, did the repairs, uh, uh, made sure that there were all the supplies needed. They were the ones who, you know, as people were coming, they would be greeting them. So they just maintained the function of the, the religious center of their, their culture. 
Out of the Levites, though, you had then your ordinary, your regular priests. These men were descendants of Aaron, the brother of Moses. Moses and Aaron were part of the tribe of Levi. And God selected Aaron and his sons to be what we know as priests. So all the Levites, in a sense, were priests. But really, this is who we think of. Because these priests were the ones who were doing the actual like sacrificing of animals, leading the burnt offerings. They were the ones who were doing the work. Now, out of that group of these ordinary priests, whoever was your head of state, a king or, or, or you know, a judge or whoever, whenever you needed to, they would select a high priest out of the ordinary priest to be in that third and last category. Your high priest kind of ruled over the other priests. They were sort of like a, a little bit like a governmental head, but not over the entire nation, just over the, the priesthood. In, later in the New Testament, your high priest becomes sort of like your president of the, the Sanhedrin. Sanhedrin would have been there in a sense, uh, like their Supreme Court. So I guess you could think of the high priest as the uh, chief justice, right? So he would be over them, and he would reign as long as needed, usually till he passed away. Maybe if he you know, did some horrible atrocity, they, they might need to remove him. But typically, he would just keep reigning. Now, one of the functions of the high priest, besides ruling over all of the priests, was once a year, on the Day of Atonement, he would go into the, the temple or the sanctuary, into what was known as the Holy of Holies. Once a year, he'd go in. Before he walked in, he would have to go through all of these purification rituals for his own sin. And then he would walk in wearing a robe on which was all of the 12 tribes of Israel. So that he could go in and represent all of the people. And there, as a representative for all of the people he would make these sacrifices on behalf of the people. It, uh, the author of Hebrews tells us a little bit more about the role of this high priest. This is Hebrews 5, 1 through 4. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And when no one takes this, and no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron, the brother of Moses, was. So your high priest is to be of the people. He's chosen by God to represent the people in order to make atonement for the people. Let me say that again. He was to be of the people, chosen by God to represent the people in order to make atonement for the people. Well, Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh, which is what Christmas is all about, so that he could become of the people. And he was chosen by God by taking on human flesh to therefore be able to represent the people because humans had sin. And so Jesus was made in the likeness of humanity who had sin, but he himself was without sin. And yet, he went and made atonement for the sins of the people. However, rather than go into a holy of holies to sacrifice an animal, Jesus, the great high priest, made himself the lamb because he was without sin, and he sacrificed himself. In other words, he did not go in simply to, to sacrifice an animal to provide temporary forgiveness of sins. He sacrificed himself 
the only human to have ever lived sinlessly in order to provide us permanent forgiveness of sin. It turns out that the puzzle picture for the Messiah wasn't just that of a prophet. We needed a prophet who would tell us God's ways and God's truth, but we also needed a Messiah who would be a priest, who would be of us, but who could then help make atonement for our sins so that we could be reconnected with Christ. I mean, with with God, our Father. Jesus is our great high priest. He is the puzzle picture. And he goes way beyond anything we could ever hope or imagine. He's a little bit magical. Now, I think that this should do two things for you if you are a follower of Jesus. The first thing I think that this truth should do is that it should uh, give you peace. Today, the uh, posts read for us uh, out of the scriptures and helped lead us in the uh, Advent reading, and today's theme is peace. Christian churches all around the globe today, on the second Sunday of Advent, are remembering that the Messiah came to bring peace. In fact, when Jesus is born and the angels announce it, this is one of the first things they say, is peace on earth, because peace had come. What we long for in life is peace. And yet Jesus, as a high priest, by coming to not only make atonement for us, but by doing it himself, he provides us with peace. And we see this in Hebrews 4. In verses 14 through 16 of Hebrews 4, it says this about Jesus, our high priest. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we did not have a high priest who was unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The author is saying that because Jesus is the high priest who went and passed through the heavens and he passed through the cross, he was able to give us that everlasting peace. If you are looking for peace, you're going to find it the most in Christ. So many of us, we're looking for it in our entertainment. We're looking for it in our bank account. We're looking for it in our addictions. We're looking for it in relationships. We're looking for it in all sorts of ways and areas. But guys, so much when you take these good things and you make them ultimate things, then it's a bad thing. The illustration I so often use is it's like drinking salt water. It looks so wet and so wonderful, but the more you drink it, the more it's just going to dry you out. To find that true, everlasting peace, you've got to come to Christ. So if you are not a follower of Jesus... Or if you've heard this story, but you've been wandering away, may you, on the second Sunday of Advent, come to Christ, give him your life, and find peace. The book of Philippians tells us that in Christ, we can have a peace that surpasses understanding. Some of you right now might be going through something really, really difficult. You're longing for peace, but as you turn to Christ, you see who he is and what he's done, you can begin to experience a peace that doesn't make sense. Everyone else looks at your situation and sees your health crisis. 
They see your financial crisis. They see your relational crisis. And they're going to be wondering, how in the world is that person so calm? And you're going to know it's because you have a great high priest who didn't just sacrifice some animal. He sacrificed himself. The priest became the lamb so that you could have life. And then did you notice what it said there? That, that when you have this peace, the author in Hebrews said that it should instill you with confidence. Not confidence in who you are. Not confidence in what you've done. Confidence in who he is and what he's done. And because your high priest has sacrificed himself, he's ripped the curtain to the Holy of Holies. When, when Jesus died on the cross, the curtain was ripped from top to bottom. They say the curtain was like three inches thick. No human could have ripped it. And yet it was ripped from top to bottom to allow the presence of God from the Holy of Holies to come out to us, but to also allow us to come into him. And so because you have this peace, you know you're okay with God you can now approach his throne of grace with confidence. God wants you to come. Some of you, you tell me that you don't like praying because you don't know what to say. You don't feel like you're good at it. I think it's because you think you have to like quote poetry to God or you have to use these big theological words. No, God just wants you. Raw, honest, awkward you. Come, come, approach his throne of grace with confidence. Not because you're so amazing and awesome, but because Jesus is amazing and awesome. And as you come and you bow before that throne, he said that you will receive mercy and grace in your, help, in your time of need. You will receive peace. But then I think this truth that Jesus is our great high priest should do a second thing. I think it gives us a purpose. Jesus being our great high priest gives us purpose. When you walk in the doors here into our building, I think most of you, your very first time, one of the first things you saw was what we have plastered on our wall. At Riverwood, we want to help you love like Jesus loved and live like Jesus lived. We think our broken world needs people who will go and be a little bit like Jesus. Now, that saying does not mean you become the Christ. There's only one Christ but you are to become like the Christ. You're to go. You're to show love. You're to go and show that kindness. You're to go and stand for truth because the truth will set people free. You are to represent Jesus in this world, which means you are to be a priest. Some of you are going, whoa, whoa, whoa. Okay, wait a second, Aaron. Like, it's one thing for me to be a Christian, to follow God, but no, I'm not a priest. Like, you think I'm, I have to, like, stand up front and preach to people, or I have to, like, let, let people confess their sins to me? No, 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 no. I, I'm not to be a priest. No, I, actually, you are. Second Timothy, sorry, First Peter 2, uh, verse 9, talking to Jesus followers, says, but you, you group of Jesus followers, you are a chosen race. Just like God chose the Jewish people to create them through Abraham, you now, as a follower of Jesus, join the church. You are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him 
who has called you out of your spiritual darkness, out of your sin, into his marvelous light, into his ways, into his life. You've been called for a purpose. Yes, God wants to instill you with peace, but that peace should get you so excited, you can't keep quiet about it. Just as you get excited about putting together a magic puzzle, and so you tell people as your opening illustration, you can't help but tell people, this is how awesome this is. You are a priest because you are of the people, chosen by God to go to the people, to represent the people, and to represent Christ to the people, and let them know that atonement has been made for their sin. So you realize that means that this Advent is not just about the Jewish people waiting for the great high priest. It isn't just about us awaiting the return of our great high priest. That this Advent might actually be about you having to go to people who are waiting for you as a priest to tell them about the life-changing message of Jesus. So this Advent... Who do you need to go to? Who do you need to minister to? Who is it who needs to hear about this peace? Because he just might want to use you. So Heavenly Father, as we end, we just want to listen to you. Who is it you are calling us to? Who is it that we need to be a blessing to? Lord, I just pray right now for those who are in this room are followers of you. That first of all, they would be coming to you, that if any of them have been kind of wandering away, if they've been wrapped up in their sin, that, that this next moment they would just confess that sin to you, and they would realize how they've been uh, going after the shallow things, that they've been drinking salt water, and yet you offer living water. And so, Father, I, I thank you that, that through you, your mercies are new every morning, that when we confess our sin, you are able and just to forgive us of that sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But God... You also want to use us. There are others out there who are drinking salt water, others who find themselves in darkness, others who are trying the ways of this world, and it is leaving them dry. And because you, Jesus, our great high priest, our light, came into this darkness, may we accept your call to go into the darkness. Father, someone here is thinking of someone. It could be a roommate, a classmate, someone at work, a neighbor. Father, I thank you that right now you've been showing that to them. But Lord, it's another thing for us this afternoon or tomorrow to actually walk across the road, to walk down to that cubicle, to, to go to that desk, to go to their room, to strike up a conversation, to ask what they need, even asking if there's anything we could pray about. Father God, I just pray that you'd help us. Many of us, we are chicken evangelists. We want to share our faith. We don't know how to do it. We're afraid. We don't want to get rejected. So I pray that you would do what only you can do, that you would open this up, that they would ask questions, that, that you would allow us to just have an opportunity to share our, our personal stories, that you would do this so that people would see Jesus. So that's why I just pray during this next holy moment, you would show us Jesus, that we would see him as 
crucified and resurrected. The, the, the one who left his throne in heaven to take on human flesh, even coming as an infant, a baby, helpless, dependent upon a mother. May we be like that. May we be, realize that we are helpless and we are dependent upon you. But then, Jesus, you grew, living the life we should have lived, but you went and died the death that we should have died. So now you call us to now follow you, to go just as you went, as you were sent for us. So God, I pray that you'd speak now. Help us to see who it is you're sending us to. Help us to find our peace in you. May you minister during these next few moments as we take the communion elements. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.